I apologize to the tech team. Uh, I, blue hymnals and brown hymnals got switched on us this week um, so that we could sing familiar words and, and have the accompaniment there uh, for all of that. Kids are dismissed for uh, Kids Zone. You can head out here, up your front left, if you're looking for a way out. Kids, kids, kids. I mean, there was something in the prayer about staying awake, too, so I don't know. Well, this is probably not the um, expected passage to kick off Advent. Um, we're, we're participating in, in uh, the church's reading of, of the lectionary, and this is um, kind of a, a strange place, I'll admit, to start our Advent series. But Advent in the, the church's history is both a celebration of Christ's first coming and anticipation of Christ's second coming. Um, today we'll look at the great expectations of Christ's coming, both what was expected of the first coming and how Jesus fulfilled or else didn't fulfill those expectations. Sometimes we think, right, Christ fulfilled all the expectations, but he didn't because there had been expectations that had been added into it, things that people expected the Messiah to do, um, ways that they expected the Messiah to, to act that really didn't, weren't out of Scripture, but they were ideas that had developed. And so there were some of those expectations that Christ thankfully does not live up to. We'll also look briefly at Christ's second coming, and um, you know we've also developed all kinds of thoughts, ideas, uh, prepackaged uh, schema filled with expectations for His second coming, um, particularly within the last 200 years, um, some ideas that have moved from cottage industry to full-out industrial complex uh, with its own books, movies, and theme songs. Um, but this morning, we're going to look at what Jesus says here in this passage in Matthew. Over the next couple of weeks, then, we're going to be looking at different expectations, uh, great expectations. If you read our newsletter, kind of borrowing uh, Dickens' title, I said in, in the article, it's not the Dickens book you expect to be referenced um, in, in the Christmas season, um, but I, I like that great expectations idea and how that um, some of those ideas we find coming to fruition and some of those ideas we find um, were mistaken all along. Let's look at what Jesus has to say. Before that, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to be here, to gather together, to open up your word, to... Um, Look once again at your, your coming and your coming again. And uh, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned, there were a number of expectations, things expected of the Messiah when the Messiah would come. Um, let me give you three quick ones that I, that I came up with. Um, I'm sure there were lots of other ways that people expected the Messiah to look like. The first one, though, is uh, 
people expected a military type of Messiah. They expected uh, a Messiah who was going to come, lead an army, kick out whoever was in control of Judea and Jerusalem at the time. And so they believed that saving God's people had come to mean throwing off whoever was oppressing the Jewish people at the moment. In the second century BC, there was a, a man named Judah, the hammer Maccabees. The hammer kind of gives you some idea of what kind of Messiah he was. Um, he had led a Jewish revolt against the Seleucid Empire and against the influence that Greek culture was having on the Jewish people. They had gained control over the temple and, and threw out or killed the priests that were complicit with the Greeks. It's where um, um, Hanukkah, the festival of Hanukkah, is introduced into uh, the Jewish faith. Uh, they eventually retook Jerusalem and for a short time established Judah as an independent state. Now, in Jesus' time, the Romans were the dominant empire seeking to control Judah, Jerusalem, and have the temple under their control. We see these expectations played out through Herod's bloody preemptive strike against the infants of Bethlehem where he uh, hopes to rid himself of any uh, potential rivals. He has this kind of understanding of a Messiah. If there's a Messiah coming, uh, he's, he's informed by the Magi that come, you know, the star has been, uh, we've seen this star, we've come to worship the king. You know, we have a, a spiritualized idea of what king is like, but, but Herod is like, no, I'm the king. I think I would know if there was a new king. I would be here. I would have been part of that process. Um, and so when he hears about a new king and a new potential Messiah, he wants to get rid of them. We see this expectation of a, a military Messiah um, perhaps reflected in at least one of Jesus' followers, Simon Iscariot. His name Iscariot shares terminology with the Sakari or the dagger men of the zealot movement, which was emerging around the time of Jesus. And these were guys that you know, hid daggers in their cloaks and would come up behind Roman soldiers or Roman officials or tax collectors or people that they didn't like, and they would stab them, just trying to cause chaos in Jerusalem. And so many believe that uh, uh, Simon Iscariot was part of that movement. We see it perhaps reflected when the crowds come and attempt to make Jesus king by force or when the disciples bring a few swords along with them following the Last Supper. There's even a flash of the sword in Jesus' name from Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will tell him to put away the sword and explain to Peter and then later to Pilate that this is not the kind of revolution and the kind of kingdom Jesus is leading. I'll say the other maybe expectation around Jesus was when they used the word savior, it wasn't just like a spiritual savior. When they talked about the Messiah saving the people, it may have included being saved from sin, but it also often included being freed from poverty and, and oppressive systems. So that was uh, another expectation of the Messiah. We'll get back to that one in a couple of weeks, looking at uh, John's expectation, John the Baptist and, and, and his expectations. Another expectation of the Messiah was that the Messiah would be from Bethlehem. 
Herod and his scribes understood the Messiah would, would come from Bethlehem, come from the city of David, uh, which is interesting that we were just finished up our um, study of John on Tuesday mornings and throughout the, the gospel of John, there is like mass confusion throughout the entire gospel as to where Jesus is from. From Bethlehem, is he from Nazareth, is he from Galilee, Do, you know, heaven, earth, like they, they're just unsure about where Jesus was from. So there's these uh, expectations and then there's kind of the, the mistaken understanding that some had at the time. So how does Jesus live up to those expectations? Over the next several weeks, we'll look at uh, some of those expectations. Even John the Baptist would start to ask questions about if Jesus really was the Messiah. Um, you know, at, at the beginning, he's there. He baptizes Jesus. He sees the Spirit uh, descend on Jesus. But, but later in John's life, when he's thrown in prison, you know, he's got some questions. He's got some wrestling, um, some, some, maybe some doubts. And he's asking, he sends one of his followers to Jesus and are you the Messiah? Or should, or should we be looking for someone else? And we'll take a look at Jesus' response. Um, other expectations. Mary and Joseph would be told to name their child Jesus because he would save his people. Mary's Magnificat, the, the song she sings after Jesus' birth, would reveal more of these Savior expectations and what she believed the Messiah, her son, would do. So we'll take a look at some of those in the coming weeks. What about this military Messiah? Obviously, this is not how Jesus comes in the first century. He talks about loving your neighbors. He turns, talks about turning the other cheek, laying down the sword. Uh, Jesus is telling Pilate that this is not the kind of kingdom he's come to inaugurate. And so many of these expectations... Jesus would upend, he would, he would turn on their head. And so Advent then is the celebration of Christ's first coming and hopeful anticipation of his second coming. And so I wonder if we haven't attached our own expectations and wishful thinking to our anticipation of Christ's coming. Just as folks had attached expectations to his First coming. In Matthew chapter 24, um, it's this whole, throughout this whole t chapter, Jesus is standing at the temple talking about uh, how it will eventually be destroyed. We talked about this passage a couple of weeks ago, and I asked you to think about someone wandering into this building, especially those of you who have grown up here uh, and spent you know, decades of your life here, I, I ask you to think about what it would be like for someone to come in and say, this building, I tell you, not one stone, not one brick will be left on top of another. It's all coming down. Um, and there were a couple of uh, responses during the service that you all offered. There were many other colorful responses that some people uh, offered after the service. Just, you know, it would be crazy to have someone come in and say, this place is going to be gone. All the bricks torn down, all the columns torn down, the sting, everything taken down. When we kind of put ourselves in, in their shoes, suddenly uh, that really struck a nerve. 
Well, Jesus' followers are asking about him publicly being unveiled as the Messiah King in all his glory. Jesus' followers are, are, are coming after him, the, the, the fishermen, you know, Matthew the tax collector. Um, others are kind of joining Jesus' movement, expecting that at some point he is going to be unveiled for everyone to understand that he is the Messiah, he is the King. And they're asking, when's this going to happen? When is this unveiling going to happen? When's everybody else going to see what we see? As if they have it all together and figured out. You read the Gospels, you figure out they're just, you know, most of the time they're as clueless as anyone else. This word for unveiling, the, the Greek word used for this public unveiling is parousia. Can you say parousia? Try it again, parousia. There you go. Uh, a word often used by theologians to talk about Christ's second coming. One commentator uh, suggests that followers of Jesus ask about Jesus coming not because they're asking about a second coming, because they, don't, they still don't comprehend that Jesus will be leaving them. They're more probably asking about the unveiling of Jesus as Messiah to the world, Jesus' public arrival. Rodney Reeves says this, We can tell by the way the disciples asked their question that they held to the common expectation that the old age would come to an end with a bang, that the messianic age would begin with cosmic fireworks that would put everyone on notice that the Messiah is large and in charge, but that's not how it would happen. Jesus talks in Matthew 24 about the destruction of the temple, which would occur in 70 A.D., he talks about the slaughter and the persecution that would follow in the wake of the destruction of Jerusalem and, and persecutions that would happen in the church uh, that would continue not only through the Roman Empire but have uh, come throughout history. And so we get narrowed down into our passage from Matthew 24, chapter, uh, chapter 24, verses 36 through 44. If you have your uh, pew Bibles, you have your Bible app, um, you might want to open that, Matthew chapter 24. Verses 36 through 44. Be kind of walking through here. Of course, Jesus' followers want to know when this is all going down. When's the temple coming down? When's this happening? When are you being unveiled? Whenever, when's everybody going to see that you are king? When can we expect these uh, persecutions? When's this going to happen? And here's what Jesus says. But about that day and hour, no one, say no one, say no one, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Basic reading comprehension question here. Who knows about the day and the hour? Only the Okay. So Jesus wants his followers to be prepared, to live lives of hopeful anticipation and expectation. And then Jesus offers a couple of analogies of being prepared for the unknown. No one knows the time. And here's what it looks like for us to be prepared with hopeful expectation. 
And he says, for as in the days of Noah, uh, as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Let me ask you a, a question just for you to think about. Who gets swept away in the Noah story? The evil, the violent, the unjust. That picture there of uh, uh, Noah's flood is a cleansing of God's creation. God's trying to wipe out everything that that is evil and unjust and this violence that is happening towards one another. Stanley Saunders highlights, for first century audiences familiar with the ways of the Roman Empire, being left behind was surely preferable to being taken. It's the people that get taken that end up on crosses. For the people of Noah's day, being swept away was not a good thing. Further, these sayings simply depict sudden, surprising separation without indicating cause for judgment or reward on the part of those taken or left behind. Jesus gives us another analogy then of the suddenness. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken and one will be left. In this analogy, we see people going about their normal routines. They're living life, they're, they're, they're working, they're with one another, they're doing the things that they've always done. And again, the emphasis is on the suddenness of the event. The hopeful anticipation of the full unveiling of Christ and the kingdom of God isn't about living as cloistered societies, holy huddles, or Christian silos that are just stargazing, just getting all together and and saying, well, we want nothing to do with the world. We're just going to live our holy life here, and we're just going to, you know, look and sit here and do nothing, waiting. Instead, the followers of Jesus are meant to live lives that reflect the new kingdom now even in the midst of the wreckage of the old world. Knowing, hoping, and anticipating the full parousia, coming, unveiling of the kingdom of God. Being prepared to, as 1 Thessalonians says, to meet Him in the air and welcome Jesus as King when He makes His dwelling with us. So the key word in this passage is watchfulness. It's watching for the inbreaking of the kingdom. To see the mustard seed-like ways that Jesus is breaking into the here and now, even as we wait for the, the consummation or the bringing together of all things under Jesus. So Jesus goes on to say then, Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. The emphasis, again, on the passage is on being prepared. And so Advent is a season of preparation. It's a reminder that we are to be prepared and opening our eyes and, and awakening to the ways Jesus is moving. 
The first hearers of Jesus actually anticipated that, that um, they would see the return of Christ in their lifetime. The temple would be destroyed in their lifetime. The persecutions came. The desolations have come and gone. Yet no one knows the time, only the Father. So be on watch and let us be found faithful. Jesus concludes this section here. <clears throat> but understand this. <clears throat> Excuse me. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Again, picture of Jesus provides of being prepared. If you knew someone was going to break into your home, he says, you'd stay awake. You, you'd be waiting for them. You know it was coming. I, I remember the, the first time I lived in my own home by myself. I had graduated uh, college, and it was before Katie and I got married and down in, in, in southern Lancaster, and it was my first night living in my house that we were renting, but, you know, it's my house. And that whole first night, I kept having these like very vivid dreams, you know, the kind that you're not sure if you're awake or that you're asleep, and you kind of keep checking, like, am I awake? But you, I was actually sleeping the whole time. And I kept having these visions, dreams, that somebody was trying to break into the home because, you know, it was the home I was responsible for. If I knew somebody was coming, I'd stay awake for it. I'd be prepared, not just laying on the couch, you know, trying to be asleep. That I just have these vivid memories of being asleep on the couch and thinking somebody's knocking on the door and sneaking around and all these other things. If you knew that was going to happen, you'd stay awake. You'd be prepared. This isn't meant to be a picture of God as thief who will come to steal. It's about being prepared and watchful. Why does God need to steal? Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And Revelation tells us, see the home of God. This is talking about the end of things. See the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. So what does it look like to be prepared and waiting with hopeful anticipation for Christ's advent? Does it just mean bringing out all the decorations for Christmas? Is that what being prepared means? I, I hope it means a whole lot more than that. Commentator Rodney Reeves sums it up this way, looking at Matthew 24 for, those first, uh, for that first audience of Jesus the only way to be prepared for the judgment day is to always be faithful, doing what they are supposed to be doing. And what are they supposed to be doing? Feeding their fellow slaves at the proper time rather than abusing them and carousing around the wrong kind of people, waiting expectedly for the return of Christ rather than being caught off guard when he appears, advancing his cause while he's away rather than hiding to avoid responsibility taking care of the needy rather than ignoring them. Ignorance is no excuse for laziness, Reeves says. Vigilance is required to face 
and uncertain future. So the Advent Christmas season is filled with opportunities, you know, to be, to be charitable, um, to do good things. This is a, a time of year where we sing about peace on earth and goodwill towards all, but it is meant to be a reminder that our lives, not just, you know, 25 days or 30 days in, in 31 days in December, like this isn't the only time that we're called to these lives. It's meant to be a reminder that our lives, everything, is meant to be one filled with generosity, with love, with grace, that peace is not something just for carols and cards, but worth our hard work and something that characterizes the kingdom of God to which we are meant to point towards with our lives. And goodwill towards all, you hear that phrase around Advent season? Goodwill towards all, is about, as the prophet Jeremiah said, seeking the peace and the wholeness of the place that we live, not just in December, not just during Advent. It's meant to be our way of life. And so we light candles during Advent. Got one uh, trying to stay lit up here. We'll light others throughout these weeks. To remember that light, light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it or comprehended it, to remind ourselves of our role in faithfully waiting, full of hopeful expectation, and shining in the midst of darkness, not to condemn, but to give light so that others may see. And here in Matthew 24, Jesus is calling his followers to be on the lookout for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. So in our waiting, let us be found living out the ways of God's kingdom even now. The hope, peace, joy, love that typically characterize Advent are meant to characterize all of life. And when Christ does return to make His dwelling with humanity, may we be found faithfully demonstrating the kingdom in our everyday lives, in the places that we work, that we shop, that we go to school, that we eat, that we gather with others, in the way we lift the burdens of others and seek the wholeness of others. Let us be prepared. This morning I'm going to, uh, we're going to respond by singing um, Jesus is Coming Again. It's in the Brown Hymnal, number uh, 172. It's the anticipation that, that Christ is coming again to be all in all, to be fully unveiled as the King. So let's stand and sing together. <laughs>